the fancy. All right. Uh, welcome, everyone, to my weird little podcast where we talk about everything weird throughout the history of things. And, and uh, so tonight is the one. What would, what would tonight's be about? Tonight is the one with tampered uh, food, tampered medicine. Tampered. Is that the word? Yeah, is that tampered. Word? Tampered, yeah, tampered yeah. products, yeah, of, of uh, various. The one yeah. with tampering, we'll just say that. Tampering leading to awful, sinister things, I guess. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um. Uh, who should go first? <laughs> when does yours take yeah, place? Yeah. Okay. I would love to. Well, now that you mention it, this is just. And seriously, this couldn't have happened um, more spookily, honestly, because, okay, so for everybody out there, I was supposed to, we were supposed to record this podcast. Uh, I'm speaking about the Tylenol murders, by the way, right? So the Tylenol murders happened in Chicago, where I am from, but I was very young at the time, so definitely don't remember them. But the main point of this is that I was supposed to record this podcast with you next week. However, we had to swap, but it worked out perfectly because today is actually 39 years to the day of the Tylenol murders in Chicago. Yeah. Can you believe that? That's awesome. Wow. (laughs) It gave me chills too because I was doing all my research and then... Then when we did the swap, I was like, oh, my God, that's going to be on the actual day that for, these occurred. So for the record, today is September 29th. Mm-hmm. Yes, September 29th. This will air weeks later. But yeah, that is uncanny. That is awesome. Yes, yeah, I think so, too. And And September 29th. And it's also the same day of the week. It's a Wednesday. Oh, weird. Oh, that is so weird. Just 39 years earlier. I would say that's awesome. (laughs) That seems in bad taste, but that is definitely weird. (laughs) Definitely. So yeah, let me, let me get into it and we'll see just how weird it gets. It's going to get very, very dark very soon, but but that's okay. It, It well, there's some positive things that did come from the Tylenol murders, believe it or not, but okay. So yes, like I said, these did happen in 1982 today, Wednesday, September 29th in Chicago, Illinois. And it really, this was very brief. This really only happened for about a month's time, these whole series of events from September through October. Um, so. Essentially, seven people died from taking Tylenol capsules that had been laced with potassium cyanide. Now, how did that happen? Well, I will get into all that. Uh, first, it's important to, <laughs> to tell you about, sadly, all the victims that were affected by the murders, but... I feel that I can't really get into what happened with the actual 
um, the theories surrounding it without getting into the victims first. So, uh, as I said, there were unfortunately seven people that died from this, but it was all on the same day. How often does that happen? And this was, this was all across Chicagoland. So Chicago is a pretty big city and much like Los Angeles, for instance, where I live currently, um, Los Angeles refers to quite a lot of different places, right? Uh, so same is kind of true with Chicago. Um, so I will mention all of the different places, but uh, let me just get into the victims. Um, and they're actually, you know, since this all occurred on the same day, there is a chronological timeline that I was able to find through my research that kind of puts it all into perspective for us. So here we go. The first victim, she was just 12 years old and her name was Mary Kellerman. She was from Elk Grove Village. Uh, so it's a north northwest suburb of Chicago. She died after taking extra strength Tylenol capsule. And she had complained of cold symptoms in the early hours of the morning. Upon taking the extra strength Tylenol capsule, she collapsed on the bathroom floor and she was dead by seven in the morning. Jeez. So that started the day. Yeah. Not a really great start to the day, unfortunately, um, for, for her and her family. And she was just the first victim. Uh, moving on to the second victim, this was around noontime that same day. A man named Adam Janis. He was a 27-year-old postal worker from Arlington Heights, Illinois. Again, another northwest suburb of Chicago. Uh, he believed he was coming down with a cold, and he stayed home from work. He stopped by the Jewel grocery store to pick up Tylenol. He took a dosage and went to lie down. Moments later, he staggered into the kitchen and collapsed. At first... Uh, they thought that he'd had a heart attack, but the doctors had no clue what could have caused his eventual death at the hospital later that day. Moving on to 3.45 p.m., that same day there was a third victim, and her name was Mary Lynn Reiner. She was 27 years old from Winfield, Illinois another suburb of Chicago. She had given birth to her fourth child just one week prior, and she wasn't feeling well from giving birth and all the after effects of giving birth, so she decided to take Tylenol, and she would collapse. She died at the hospital a day later. Moving on to 5 o'clock p.m., the same day, the fourth and fifth victims, and their names were Stanley and Teresa Janice. If the last name sounds familiar, it's because you'll recall just hours earlier at noontime, uh, 
Adam, or I'm sorry, um, Stanley's brother, Adam, was the man that had just died at the hospital. So Jeez, after yeah. leaving the hospital, <laughs> after leaving the hospital where Adam, Janice, and he was Stanley's older brother, after leaving the hospital where he died, Stanley and Teresa, his wife, and other family members, they gathered at Adam's house to mourn and to make funeral arrangements. While Stanley complained to his wife of a headache and some back pain, and she realized that she had a headache too, but he asked her to get some Tylenol to, or something at least, to help for the headache. So she actually got the Tylenol. She saw the same bottle, unbeknownst to her, that Adam had bought and that had killed him. So they both took a dosage of Tylenol, so two capsules each, and they both collapsed on the floor moments later. Stanley died at the hospital a few hours later. Teresa wouldn't die until about two days later. But he was 25 years old at the time. She was 19, so still very young, and they were healthy. Uh, not, no other problems up until then. At 6.30 p.m., there was a sixth victim, and her name was Mary McFarland. She was 31 years old. She was from Elmhurst, Illinois. So these are mostly all in the suburbs. Elmhurst, again, is another suburb. But Mary was at work, and she had a bad headache. She took Tylenol. She collapsed on the floor within minutes, and she died the next day. The last person that day to fall victim was the seventh victim, and that was at 9.30 p.m. Her name was Paula Prince. She was 35 years old, so she was actually uh, the oldest victim, and she was a flight attendant. She lived in the Old Town neighborhood in Chicago, so she was actually the only one living in the city um, proper, but she stops at Walgreens drugstore to buy Tylenol. Two days later, the police discover her body dead inside her apartment, and the Tylenol bottle was still sitting open on the vanity in the bathroom. So apparently she had taken the Tylenol when she was inside the bathroom. And by the time she got to the doorway, she had collapsed. Jeez. Yeah. So that was just, I just couldn't believe that all of these victims were on, all on the exact same day. I remember hearing about the Tylenol murders, but I had no clue that they were all on, they all occurred, the poisoning at least, all occurred on the same day. Some of the yeah. deaths varied, you know, they were the next day or two days later, but, um, you know, at least a few people died on the first day. Uh, the the 12-year-old Mary Kellerman and Adam Janice, they definitely died on the first day. Um so a little interesting, I found this information on um, 
through Chicago Magazine through their website. And the website is chicagomag.com. And if you're more interested in finding out a um, chronological breakdown of everything that happened, definitely check out that website um, with this article regarding the Tylenol murders because um, that was all constructed through them. And I was really happy that I found that because it really put everything into kind of a more, you know, a better timeline for me to follow to see exactly mm-hmm. what happened. But but when you go to that website and you and you read the article, it includes um, testimony or factual evidence from a lot of the people that were involved in the case, everyone from the, a nurse to a doctor to the investigator who is investigating the case. Uh, and they give their little commentary and snippets on what they remember of that day. So it's actually very, very interesting. So if you'd like to know more about that, I encourage you to go to chicagomag.com and you can get a full in-depth review of everything that happened according to the people who were there at the time. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was really interesting to me. So um, the doctors and police, they were slow at first to make any connection or even to believe that the deaths could have been caused by simply ingesting Tylenol capsules. That was really pretty unthinkable at the time, believe it or not, (laughs) to believe that um, anyone could tamper with any kind of product, maybe especially medicine, uh, was definitely, this was not something that was present in uh, doctors' minds, in law enforcement's mind. They, they just could not even, that's why they, when Adam Janis, who was the second victim, when he went to the hospital, they thought that it was, you know, like just a heart attack or some kind of heart problem because yeah. they couldn't find any reason why this would have happened to him um Mm -hmm. tylenol at the time in 1982 it was a giant in the -the over-the-counter medicine industry as far as an analgesic or something that helps you um helps you relieve pain a pain reliever essentially uh it was a giant so there wasn't much competition besides Tylenol at that time. Uh, Not like all the different kind of remedies that we have today. Uh, They, people really relied on Tylenol and they took it for all kinds of reasons. You know, the most common ones being colds, headaches, fevers. But once they finally made the connection, uh, the tests were conducted and they would reveal that there was cyanide present in the capsules. And the doctor, one of the doctors who was um, the head doctor uh, on one of the cases, his name was Dr. Kim, and he checked the blood levels for cyanide poisoning. And he found that uh, after he read the lab reports, he said, quote, it was 
a massive amount of cyanide, a hundred or a thousand times more than was necessary to kill them. So uh, that was a lot of cyanide. Jeez. <laughs> Someone really wanted to cause harm to other human beings, and they were going to make sure that this dose was more more than lethal that it was going to be just kind of instantaneous i guess um and i actually didn't know that much about cyanide but for anyone else who might not know um it smells like almonds and only about half the population can smell it the investigator on the case could and that's why they were able to determine at first that, well, they after they did the blood test, they, they knew for sure. But when they first were examining the capsules and they, they opened them, they opened the bottles and the investigator said that they could smell almonds very strongly. And then it was kind of a, a foregone conclusion for them at that point. Um, cyanide is a chemical asphyxiant. It blocks the utilization of oxygen by red blood cells. It causes brain damage and cardiac arrest. So like in Stanley Janis, that's why they thought he had a heart attack. And this all happens very quickly. Um, so like I mentioned, all of the victims who would take the Tylenol capsules and then moments later collapse on the floor, you think, well, it can't just happen that instantly. No, it can. And if it was that amount of cyanide in there, a hundred or a thousand times more, of course it's going to make someone instantly drop to the floor. So there was actually in that Chicago uh, Magazine article, uh, one of the surviving brothers for Adam and Stanley Janice, his name was Joe, I believe, but he described the scene uh, as, you know, he saw his brother Adam die at the hospital and then going back to Adam's house to mourn him and, and make the, the family arrangements. Then he saw his other brother, Stanley, uh, he said his eyes rolled back in his head and his mouth just started oozing with foam. And then he just, you know, he just keeled over. So it's yeah. just terrifying. <laughs> he said, you know, I'll never get that image out of my mind. And I definitely imagine that you wouldn't. Um, what a horrible thing to go through. So, but that is just one example to illustrate how fast the cyanide works, especially if you're using that kind of amount, it's just going to kill you instantaneously. So you can imagine that after all this happened, um, there was going to be mass hysteria uh, if this situation was not handled the right way. So, um, in Chicago, in the city, they held press conferences and they televised them. And the police in Chicago actually patrolled the neighborhoods 
and they used loudspeakers, bullhorns to warn residents to discontinue the use of Tylenol products. So if you can imagine, I mean, them doing something like that today, I mean, they probably wouldn't because there's internet and there's media. The media presence is even bigger than it was back then. So they probably wouldn't need to do anything like that. But back then, they just drove through the streets and it was like kind of like the town proclamation, like, don't use Tylenol, (laughs) get rid of all your Tylenol bottles. Um, I can't imagine. It must have been very strange. Uh, But like I said, I I definitely don't remember because I was too young. I was alive, but I was very young. (laughs) So... And not not at the age where I was taking Tylenol, thankfully. Um, but they they ruled out that it it could have been sabotage during production. The police really thought that they were looking for possibly one person who took bottles of Tylenol from different stores, most likely supermarkets and drugstores, over the course of several weeks. And that this person would be maybe kind of a lone madman type of thing, that they would be a culprit who could add cyanide to the capsules, because all you had to do at that point with capsules is just carefully unscrew the capsule and then add your, your cyanide, your poison, and then return each, return to each store and place the bottles back on the shelves. So that definitely sounds like the work of somebody who is, you know, definitely not right in their mind, Uh, definitely wants to hurt people, and also someone who has a lot of patience and is very methodical um, to take that time to to do that. Kind of one of the biggest positives out of the case was that it brought about a whole lot of big safety changes. Johnson and Johnson, who made Tylenol, who makes Tylenol, they did respond quickly and they recovered pretty quickly as well. When it was found out that all of the cap that the capsules that had killed these people had, um had been had been laced with cyanide they halted Tylenol production and advertising and on October 5th 1982 which was very soon after these deaths um less than a week they issued a nationwide recall of Tylenol products at the time about 31 million bottles were in circulation So that was for them a retail value loss of over a hundred million dollars. So today that would have been equivalent to about $268 million. So quite, quite a significant loss, but obviously they had to do something and thank goodness they did or more people, more than seven may have died. And who knows if it was just in Chicago or it, or if it spread wider, I'll get into that in a moment. But 
the ads on that were showing on TV and, and the media specifically said to not take any of Johnson and Johnson's products, which were containing acetaminophen, which of course, if most people know Tylenol contains acetaminophen. Um, so the capsules were the only products apparently that had been tampered with. They couldn't find any other evidence of tampering only with those specific capsules with Tylenol. So Johnson and Johnson actually offered to exchange all of the Tylenol capsules that anyone had previously bought uh, for solid tablets. So that was their way of, um, you know, obviously trying to help rectify the situation and let people know, hey, our product is safe. Uh, we're sorry that you bought possibly a tampered product. So we're just going to replace it for free for you. Yeah. Um, so I can't think of a single medicine nowadays that comes in a capsule besides like the gel capsules. Uh, right. There's really yeah. not many. Not like those old old school capsules. Yeah. Where you could, like I said, just unscrew them basically. Yeah. And the I content would, would be like in the, in the 80s and 90s, but I can't think of that mm-hmm. now of anything. No, there's not, there's not really, I mean, to my knowledge anyway. Yeah. Um, other than, you know. They, they might be. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say. They might be for. When you buy Molly from your friend or anything, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna well yeah. I mean no, I mean I, I'm not sure. I've never taken it, but I mean I'll take your word for it. But I the the thing that came to my mind was actually um like I don't know if anybody's seen Nurse Jackie or if you've seen Nurse Jackie with Edie Falco. Mm-hmm. But she was uh her character on the show is a pill popper essentially and she's addicted to opiates and stuff but i remember her character taking one of the capsules out and you know opening it up to snort it you know on the show so i was like oh you can actually unscrew those things so that was <laughs> I, that was the first time i had seen it but but yeah you're right there's not there's really not any capsules anymore and that leads me right into my next point uh of that I found out with research here is that, yeah, you're really not going to find those kind of capsules anymore because after these murders occurred, that's when all the safety stuff went into effect. The, all the tamper resistant packaging came and it came as a direct result because of these murders. So that's pretty astounding too, uh, because it, it's still, I mean, yes, it does seem like a long time ago, but it still took until 1982 for us to get tamper-resistant seals on stuff. Um, I guess maybe if no one had been trying to kill anybody, we <laughs> might still not have them. <laughs> but but that, like I said before, that was unheard of. So uh, that someone would want to hurt someone or infect someone's uh, you know, milk, juice, medication, anything like that. Um, so, so yeah, they, that brought about the tamper safety seals and better quality controls and 
So every time that you're you're frustrated with opening that that tamper resistant seal or getting through all that cotton in the bottle, just remember that that's all there. And if you can get through it and you have to open it yourself, then you know that no one has tampered with it. And that's the idea anyway. Um, but I just couldn't believe reading all of this, how easy it was. Because I thought at first, well, how did somebody uh, poison all those bottles? But yeah, they just went through methodically and added the cyanide. You couldn't do that nowadays, obviously. Yeah. They've got the childproof lock. They've got the seals. Unless it's going to be at the manufacturing level, which yeah. I said they, they, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm well, sure I mean, they the, figure that out, you know. They, they probably have cameras. Yeah, no, the, right, <laughs> right. I mean, there's still, um, there's still some people who believe with the Tylenol murders that it was uh, tampering that happened at the manufacturing level, but uh, that is not a widely believed theory. That's, that's kind of held by a smaller percentage of people. Most people believe that the findings of the police were correct that that it was going to be one person or perhaps a group of people that orchestrated these poisonings. But we still don't know who did it. And I'll get to that in a moment. But um, so, yeah, the, the tamper resistant packaging was put in place and the industry as a whole moved away from the capsules because they're easy to contaminate obviously. And they moved to solid caplets. We all know the word caplet now, right? <laughs> it's pretty, you know, that that's how most of the most of the pills that we see over the counter, Tylenol included, they yeah. are in, in caplet form, a lot of them. So they're made to look like a capsule, but it's actually just a tablet in the shape of a capsule. So harder to break open and and not easy to contaminate therefore safer to the consumer so that kind of brings us to who did perpetrate the tylenol murders well unfortunately to this day there is no suspect that's ever been charged or convicted uh the most prominent person in the case who it was decided kind of definitively that he didn't really have anything to do with it in the end. Uh, it, he was a very unlikely suspect, but he was the one who actually went to the, um, not to the police, but he, he wrote a letter to Johnson and Johnson directly. This man was from New York city. And his name was James William Lewis. He claimed to take responsibility for the deaths. The letter he wrote to Johnson & Johnson said as much. And then he demanded $1 million to stop the killings. He wrote this letter, um, I believe it was on October 6, 1982. So just days after the killings. So he wrote the letter to Johnson and Johnson. He demanded $1 million and I will stop the killings. 
but there was never any evidence at all tying him to the poisonings. And at that point, because he had written that letter, he was convicted of extortion. And he actually went to prison for about 13 years. So, uh, for extortion. But then in January of 2010, because the case is still open, um, the police felt strongly about Lewis still, and they asked Lewis and his wife if they would give DNA samples and fingerprints to the authorities. They agreed to do that, but the results were inconclusive. They didn't find anything. So what they had thought uh, previously when they took him to jail, he was apparently not guilty at all of this crime. So uh, mm-hmm. why he wanted to say he was responsible just to try and get a million dollars, I'm not really sure, but <laughs> that is what he'll go down in history as as being known for. Um, so apparently now he's upset that he got the rap as you know, being being thought to have caused the Tylenol murders. Well, why would you say it was you in the first place then? So <laughs> he's, co- he's complaining about a situation that he created himself. So yeah. not really sure that what one. that's. Yeah, not really <laughs> sure what that's about. Could have easily avoided, but he was uh, <laughs> unfortunately he, he was one of the only suspects. There were a couple other suspects beyond him, but. Both of those uh, suspects were were not found to be guilty, and and th- there wasn't again there was not enough evidence. Uh, there hasn't been enough evidence still, and that's still why no one has come forward. No one has admitted that they did this. But uh, it gets even um, crazier in the suspect area. Because uh, I said that that James Lewis and his wife, they gave the DNA samples in January 2010. Well, on May 19th, 2011, the FBI actually requests DNA samples from the Unabomber himself, Ted Kaczynski. And this is in connection to the Tylenol murders. He denies having ever possessed (laughs) potassium cyanide. But it's very unusual still, because even though he denied it, that he never possessed it, I really don't, after reviewing this, you know, the little that that is at the tip of the iceberg on this case, I really don't get a strong feeling that it, personally, that it could be Ted Kaczynski, but these, I could see why, why they definitely wanted to at least get a DNA sample from him. Uh, the first four Unabomber crimes happened in Chicago and the suburbs. And I didn't know that, but they happened there from 1978 to 1980. So the first four of his crimes happened there. And occasionally he would stay with his parents in Lombard, Illinois, which wouldn't be too far from all these other, um, from all these other poisonings, but that was actually in 1982. So, so he was in the area basically at the time. So theoretically, yes, he could have also been, 
he could also be the perpetrator of the Tylenol murders. Um, we just don't know. And just because he said he didn't ever have potassium cyanide doesn't mean that he's obviously telling the truth. He's a Unabomber after all. So <laughs> I'm not I'm not too sure. But I thought that that was really interesting to find out that they got his DNA. So after all of these murders occurred, the the thing that occurred across the United States was that there was hundreds of copycat attacks. And some of these were from Tylenol, but others of them were from other over-the-counter medications and even other products. The biggest, uh, I guess, how shall I put it? Well, uh, another person who definitely was found to not be doing the right thing was a woman named Stella Nickel, and she was from Seattle. She tampered with Excedrin capsules, and she actually laced those with cyanide as well. She wound up murdering her husband and another woman, and she was actually convicted and sentenced to 90 years in prison. And the only way that she was convicted and and got that many years is because now it was a federal crime to tamper with products after the Tylenol murders. Before that, it wasn't because, like I mentioned a couple times before, no one had ever thought that anything like this would ever happen. So now after those murders, it was made into a federal crime. And in 1983, they called it in Congress, the Tylenol bill that was passed to turn it into a federal crime. Yeah. So as I mentioned, the murders are, the case is still cold. And today marks the 39th anniversary. It's said that um, that the police in Chicago, if they are questioned about it, that they are willing to talk about it, but only into up to a point. That they keep a lot of information closed off, uh, sealed off. And in fact, one of the relatives of one of the victims it was um, Mary, sorry, I'm just looking for her name. It was Mary Lynn Reiner, her niece. Um, she has made several attempts to get the police to unseal the records on the case uh, to try and find out what happened, what really might have happened. Uh, but because the case is still open and still cold, they will not release any information to her. Um, so they do they the the police in Chicago are um they are hopeful that they will still be able to solve the case but you know it has been quite a long time and no one has still come forward so if we do see a crack in the case it would be amazing but at this point uh it's it hasn't been able to to be determined who who did it or even who might have been involved with it mm-hmm. other than the suspects that they've already um they've already cleared so um it's it's just very <laughs> it kind of at that point 
or, or it takes on for me almost kind of, even though it was a real thing that really happened, it kind of takes on that urban legend kind of thing in a way, um, because just no one can find out who actually did it. So, but I mean, the deaths did actually occur and they occurred all on the same day. Most of them were in the Chicago suburbs. Most of them were, were young people. Um, but other than that, there's really no connections. There's no motives. It's just a crazy, crazy case that has not been solved. So, um, and if it hadn't happened, like I said before, we wouldn't have had all the tamper-resistant packaging. It's crazy to think, I mean, nowadays it's like you wouldn't buy milk with a broken seal or juice yeah. with a broken seal yeah. or a bottle of Tylenol with a broken seal. But back then, no, just everything was open. And that's crazy to think about, too, yeah. because, yeah, you know, I can't recall a time when it was ever like that. So, yeah. so yeah, we these, these laws. That. We were talking about that with the Amber Alert, that it's just it's sad that tragedy mm -hmm. has to happen for us to learn from these things. And we can't we almost never have the forethought of what if something bad were to happen you know it's always right. like well right you know it, it's just eh, it's so sad that people have to lose their lives in order for us to put the safety measures there you know but exactly. how would we know how would we know no so we wouldn't yeah. and and i uh i wanted to mention too because i just i just remembered uh that in the same year, 1982, because it was such a big scare with the Tylenol murders and people thinking, you know, God, could this happen to me type of thing, that parents of young children were very hypervigilant about everything. And this was actually, according to the New York Times, this was actually the year that people would find... Um, stuff in their Halloween candy from trick-or-treating, like razors and and needles and stuff like that. I, I thought that did not really happen, but I guess it did. So, <laughs> um, Well, we'll get into that with my story, actually. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a great transition because that actually uh, has to do with what I'm going to talk about next, actually. He's there, but we're back now. Yes. So as... <laughs> We were saying before that mm -hmm. tampering with medicine led to tampering with Halloween candy and people putting razor blades and needles in Halloween candy. Um, so that may have not ever happened because there has been no ever definitive case of someone actually doing that. Most of that is urban legends that are based off of the story that I'm about to get into where someone did tamper with Halloween candy, but there was a lot more to the story than just simply poisoning the neighborhood kids. But you'll see, I'm going to, I'll get into it then. Um, I like so, that. simply poisoning the neighborhood kids. That's awesome. Simply poisoning the neighborhood kids is what I just do on the weekends, guys. <laughs> 
Well, when you want them to be quiet, I mean, what else can you do? <laughs> I know, it's the right? simplest answer. Uh, That's what I feel like doing around here. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> we have a we have an email now, so please send your hate mail to my weird little <laughs> podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> All right. So I guess there's a reason why I don't have kids already. No. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, anyway. <laughs> I actually really love kids. But it's fun <laughs> it's fun to think about being like Mrs. Hannigan to them, I guess, yeah. in a way. So. <laughs> I am really good with kids. However, my feeling about children and being around them is is complex. <laughs> A little is, is complex. Yeah, Different. Cool. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate kids and I I appreciate where they come from. But uh but yes, That's weird. I would love to play this game. <laughs> that would be really cool. I think she's she's fun. Um anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, so my, my story I'm going to tell tonight is the pixie stick killer. Bum, bum, bum. So I know Pat's I familiar. Yeah. I know Pat's familiar with this story, but are you familiar at all with the pixie no, stick killer? I'm actually not. I'm very intrigued to hear this because okay. it may, it may sour me on pixie sticks for life, but that's okay. Uh, it's not the pixie sticks fault. <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> all right then. Carry on. <laughs> I, I do also not mind a pixie stick. I like the paper ones over the plastic ones. Um, yeah. However, I'm pretty sure the plastic ones are the one the culprit in this story. So, Ooh, okay. you know the big, the big, big pixie stick. The big ones. Oh no, no. Yeah. yeah. I was just about fine. to ask what the difference was, but yeah, the plastic ones just had they had to be able to hold more. I guess just a massive amount. Yeah, I'll never go with that one. That's too much pixie stick. No, sorry. I, I only yeah. snorted the paper ones. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's so much. Um, what you call it from Breakfast Club? Her uh, vibes when she puts the pixie stick on her sandwich. Oh, that's right. Oh, it's, yeah. I forgot about that. It's like the most disgusting sandwich you've ever seen. It's like buttered bread with like some pimento loaf. Yuck. Sorry to anyone out there who likes pimento loaf. But then she put all that pixie stick sugar all over it and then she eats the sandwich. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we used to do bagels, bagels with cream cheese with uh those flaming hot cheetos on top or <laughs> or what? bagels so with good, cream yeah. cheese with red vines on top oh my god so the red yeah. vines i never got the cheetos i did i, I did get i okay. didn't understand that to my you last man licorice but yeah yeah to my listeners if you ever get the chance eat flaming hot cheetos dipped in cream cheese you will thank me it is incredible. Uh, but I think the Red Vines, it was just like a mock, like, strawberry, like, cream cheese, you know? Oh, I, I mean, can see that trying yeah. in. Okay, okay. That's the logic there. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, when you're in a school, you do some nasty, nasty things when, yeah. Okay, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I was going to say with food, but... Okay. In general, right? uh, so 
So anyways, okay, Pixie Stick Killer. Here we go. So Halloween night, 1974. A young boy died after eating candy poisoned with cyanide he received from trick-or-treating. So Houston, Texas is where the story takes place. Uh, Sixth largest city in the nation. Uh, The city at the time was being supplemented by the Air and Space Agency or NASA. National Air and Space Agency. Is that what that stands for? National hey, Aeronautics Space. Right? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, maybe I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, Houston was, uh, yeah, the place I guess to be. So Deer yeah. Park, which was a suburb of Houston, uh, lived a family, the O'Brien family, which was considered the picture perfect family. Ronald O'Brien was an op- optician. For Mm -hmm. Texas State Optical, or TSO, and he made eyeglasses. He was the deacon at the church and sang in the choir. He had two children, Timothy, age eight, and Elizabeth, age five. So on Halloween night, Ronald took his children and some of the children from the neighborhood to the neighboring city of Pasadena. Um, So apparently, yeah, there is a Pasadena in Texas as well. Uh, they were going to visit family and trick-or-treat in the area. Uh, when they got home that night, Ronald let his children eat one piece of candy from their bag. Timothy selected a pixie stick. When Timothy swallowed the candy, he immediately complained that the candy tastes bitter. His father gave him some Kool-Aid to wash it down. A few minutes later, Timothy ran to the bathroom holding his stomach and threw up. He started convulsing. He went limp. He went limp in his father's arm. An ambulance was called. Uh, Timothy was dead before le- uh, before leaving to head to the hospital. No, wait. Okay, sorry. An ambulance was called, but Timothy was dead before arriving at the hospital. Sorry, uh, autocorrect on that one. Um, so yeah. Poor baby. That's crazy. So also I was thinking we should change the title of the episode from the one with tampering to the one with cyanide because I didn't really realize that your story had to do with cyanide poisoning as well. Apparently that's the way to kill someone. I guess if you want to poison somebody, that was the poison of the day. I guess. From the so, 70s on? Yeah. Yeah. So upon autopsy, sorry, I said that weird. Upon autopsy, it was discovered <laughs> that Timothy had been poisoned with cyanide enough to kill two grown adults. Oh, my God. That's horrible. So, no child had ever been poisoned by trick-or-treat candy before or even since. Uh, When news got out, parents turned to their kids' candy to be tested, uh, turned in there. So when news got out, parents turned in their kids' candy to be tested by police. Four four other tainted pixie sticks were found. One from Timothy's sister, uh, a family friend, and two other kids the O'Brien children had been trick-or-treating with. 
So four more had been found all connected to the O'Briens. One of the families found the pixie stick in the hand of their son. Uh, when they So when they found out about this, they ran to their son's room and they found him asleep in the bed with the pixie stick in his hand. When they grabbed the pixie stick, they realized that it hadn't been opened and he'd fallen asleep trying to open the pixie stick. Oh. Isn't that fucking, isn't that terrifying? Like yeah, running into your nuts. room and seeing the pixie stick in your kid's hand and he's asleep. Like they must have automatically thought he was dead. But right, luckily, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Luckily, he yeah, couldn't eat. yeah. Luckily, their kid couldn't figure out how to open it and gave up and fell asleep. Uh, to his credit, so right. So, uh, so he was not able to get the the staple open on the top. Which, if you know pixie sticks, they're not stapled. They're like surgic. Like they're like melted clothes but this had a staple at the top uh so the tubes had been cut open and the top two inches of the candy poured out and replaced with cyanide and uh it had been stapled shut again the police were determined to find who had passed out these candies ronald o'brien said that they had come from one of the houses they had visited trick-or-treating so the children had gone up to a house, rung the doorbell, and but no one came out. And so Ronald hung back as the children moved on to the next house. The door opened and a man handed him the pixie sticks and then closed the door again. So all Ronald, according to Ronald Bryan, all he saw was a man reach his hand out, hand him a stack of pixie sticks, and then immediately close the door which sounds like the creepiest thing ever um right but of course that's what happened so none of the children witnessed who had given the candy out so uh ronald caught up with his children and distributed the candy ronald could not remember which house he had gotten the candy from the police interviewed uh the homeowners along the two streets that the children had been trick-or-treating at but none of the houses had passed out pixie sticks. Ronald could not remember which house had given him the pixie sticks, but on the third time around the neighborhood, Ronald finally remembered and pointed out a house that belonged to Courtney Melvin. Courtney uh, was an air traffic controller, and he had been working on Halloween night and wasn't home until after 11 p.m. 200 people had seen him working that night. So the suspicion fell on Ronald O'Brien. Bum, bum, bum. Right, of course, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So Ronald O'Brien, he had never had any run-in with the law, but he was said to have a short temper. He had difficulty holding down jobs. He had 21 jobs over the past 10 years. Eh, so have I, but. <laughs> <laughs> what else? I haven't had 21 <laughs> jobs, but I've definitely had like a new job every year. So eh, I'm not going to go bo- poison my children or anything, but. <laughs> That's good to know. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he was suspected. Uh, he was suspected uh, of stealing from his job at the TSO and was close to being fired. Uh, he liked to spend beyond his means and was currently in a hundred thousand in debt. So he was close. Yeah. Suspicious. He was close to losing his home. He had taken out insurance policies on his children. Oh my God. Wait, what? Wait. Yeah. Wait, I guess, I guess No, that's still fucking weird. You you know, he didn't, it wasn't just like a family life insurance thing. And then. No, he had taken out life insurance policies on his children, which was, which was weird. That's fucking creepy. In the 1970s, it's weird today. Like, unless, right. like <laughs> I understand like family life insurance, but even the insurance company was suspicious, and they definitely discouraged him from doing this. Especially when he had trouble paying the mortgage of his home, why would he be taking out these insurance policies on his children when he couldn't even yeah. pay his mortgage? I wonder so, if that's something that they alert the police about now. Because, yeah, that's so suspicious. Maybe. Maybe. So in January 1974, unknown to his wife, he had taken out a $10,000 uh, life insurance policy on each of his children. A month before Timothy's death, he increased the policy to $30,000. A few days before, it was bumped up to $50,000. After Timothy's death, Ronald called the insurance company to cash out. So hours, sorry, hours after Timothy's death, Ronald called the insurance company to cash out on the policy. Wow. Like didn't waste it. Oh my God, nope. man. Uh, days before Halloween, Ronald had bragged to his coworkers that his financial state was going to improve. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh my God. Like not hilarious, but like, yeah. Like what a douchebag of extraordinary yeah. measures. Holy shit, yeah. Maniacal. Like like it's like it's like he wanted to get ca- caught, you know, saying stupid shit like that, you know? Like I, it's like Like it's was so he trying to like hint at it? Like just keep your mouth closed and then poison your kids and go off and live your life. <laughs> That's hilarious, right? Yeah. Obviously he got off on it or he wouldn't have mentioned anything. Yeah, like so so uh that's true yeah so brian oh so it's not brian uh ronald o'brien stuck to his story (laughs) that he had gotten the candy while trick-or-treating but a customer at the tso who was a chemical salesman remembered o'brien asking him about different poisons including cyanide and asking how much a person uh how much would kill a person and where to buy some? What the fuck? So, oh, okay. So before we... <laughs> All your basic questions, right? <laughs> right so before exactly. we go any further. Or, so during the break, we were talking about Jeffrey Dahmer a little bit. And yes. um, because uh, with my new haircut I feel and my glasses, I feel like I look like Jeffrey Dahmer. But um, <laughs> just a bit. Uh, just a bit like young Jeffrey Dahmer like you know anyways um, so uh, 
on my tour that I give here in uh, the lovely Sin City, uh, I... So, okay. So there's a lot to this story. I'm just going to go in. I'm just going to go into all of it. Yeah. So my manager asked me, he was like, do you ever think that, you know, somebody who's like killed someone or a murderer has ever like come on this tour? Cause we get a lot of people here who are like very strange oh, yeah. on the tour. And I, like, yeah, yeah. probably statistically, we've probably had somebody who's killed someone on the tour. And I was like, ha ha ha, you know, probably, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> was like my reaction you know you never know you never know so uh like a couple days later i'm i'm in our room where it's like about true crime and i'm giving like the true crime speech uh and this one guy who had been super excited to do the tour comes up to me and he's like hey i've got like some interesting stuff to tell you and i have like people who tell me they're related to Jeffrey Dahmer or like their mom av- avoided capture from the uh, Night Stalker, you know, stuff like that. Like people do have connections to these stories, you know, and I believe them, you know, most of the time. But this guy he's like, so I sold the acid to Jeffrey Dahmer. And he doesn't mean acid the drug. He means acid the acid that Jeffrey Dahmer used to dispose of the bodies. So he tells me that he was a a chemical salesman who worked at a company that sold acid to people who did taxidermy and various other things. And his everyday life was very much like plain, like I, I sell chemicals, you know, like, I work in retail, nothing interesting. So he had this guy come and ask to buy some exorbitant amount of acid. And he was like, we can't sell you that amount of acid. That is beyond the limit that one person is allowed to get. We're only allowed to sell you like 12 ounces or gallons or whatever. And he had to have a manager come in and approve of it. And the manager, you know, whoever was above him did approve of it and everything. And they sold this gentleman the acid. Well, lo and behold, months later, when Jeffrey Dahmer is caught, he had to be interviewed by the FBI about selling this chemical to Jeffrey Dahmer. And he remembered remembered this situation and he was like so yeah i have that on my conscience he's like i i grew up in this town um i can't remember where jeffrey dahmer was from he's from milwaukee Uh, wisconsin so uh, so he grew up there and a lot of his friends from high school grew up there too and many of the people that he was still friends with had casual interactions with jeffrey dahmer And he said that they all meet once a year to talk about it and kind of meet and discuss. And it's like their therapy of dealing with the guilt and processing it and coping with it. And I was, I told him, I was like, that's, you know, that's probably very smart and that's probably very good for you to deal with that, you know, uh, (laughs) and process that as a group. And he was like, yeah, but I, you know, like I, I, 
have that as my one cool story. He's like, everything else from my life is pretty normal and boring. And he's like, but I love true crime now, <laughs> you know, and he, he had a great time at the museum, but I had to tell my manager later, like, yeah, you know, I don't know if we ever had a killer, uh, on our tour, but I do have a guy who sold the poison or not the poison, but acid that broke down the bodies, uh, to Jeffrey Dahmer. So, uh, there's that. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah, wow. On the tour. So wow. yeah, that's pretty close. Like connection. Ugh, grizzly. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I just, I always am very grateful when people share that stuff with me. Like I did, yeah. I did have somebody on my tour who was like, "Oh yeah, we're related to the Bundys. Like they, uh, they came to my sister's wedding," and I was like, "Oh okay, <laughs> you know, yeah. What else can you say?" <laughs> Sometimes I don't believe them, but like, yeah. Like that one guy, he had so many details from the story that I was just like, that's, that's interesting. Like, that's an incredible story. And thank you for sharing that with me. I'm very appreciative of that. But wow. Like, I'm glad that he's processing it in a, in a good way. Because yeah. that's a lot of guilt. That's a lot of guilt to have, you know, for that sure. you, you had a hand in the killing of all of these, all of these people, but Anyways, so I just thought of that when uh, this part of the story. So anyway, so Ronald stuck to his story that he had gotten that uh, the candy, he had gotten the candy while trick-or-treating. A customer at TSO who was a chemical salesman remembered O'Brien asking him about a different, uh, asking him about different poisons, including cyanide and how much uh, you would need to kill a person and where to buy some. So a chemical supply company member, O'Brien, remembers uh, O'Brien coming in looking to buy cyanide, but left after finding out that he would have to buy a minimum of five pounds. So there was never any proof that O'Brien ever actually bought cyanide um, because these companies pretty much had well this one company denied him and this other person he had just asked about the cyanide but on the night of halloween uh his wife attested that he had behaved odd he was jumpy whenever a kid appeared uh to open their candy and he had jumped across the room when a child tried to take candy out of timothy's bag Uh, Ronald's wife claimed that Timothy hadn't originally selected the pixie stick as his one piece of candy, but was told by Ronald that the lollipop he chose would take too long to eat before going to bed and told him to eat the pixie stick instead. Later on, a pocket knife was found in the O'Brien's house that had residue of powdered candy on it, which means that he had cut open the pixie stick and yeah. Uh, So at Timothy's funeral, Ronald was heard saying he was going to use the money from the life insurance policy to take a vacation. Yeah. 
fucking yeah. a. Yeah. Like bragging at the funeral. So, Ronald O'Brien was arrested on November 5th, 1974, six days after the murder. He pleaded not guilty, still trying to stick to his story about the random strange po- uh, stranger. Still trying to stick to his story about the random stranger poisoning the children. But he was charged with one count capital murder and four counts attempted murder. He was sentenced to death and sent to prison in Huntsville. The press dubbed him the Candyman. On March 31st, 1984, after exhausting all of his appeals, he was put to death by lethal injection. A crowd outside of the prison yelled trick-or-treat and threw candy in the air. Wow. (laughs) Dang. Yeah. So that is the story of the Candyman. And that is the only, only uh, on-record incident where someone had given tampered trick-or-treat candy during Halloween, which was really a father trying to kill his son. Uh, However, it has led to many urban legends. And I'm sure in your town, you had a policy of uh, how to deal with tampered candy. My parents would go through our candy piece by piece if anything was opened, they would throw it away, which I like, honestly, if it's opened, doesn't necessarily mean it's tampered with, but it's probably not sanitary, you right. know, so that's, right. that's fair for them to throw it away. But I remember one year, my parents taking the candy to uh, doctors on duty and the doctors on duty. Uh, I don't know. Do you have doctors on duty where you're from? It's like a private company. Yeah. That's like a doctor. Oh, I mean that like an on-call service or something. Yeah, I don't know. Like I don't not. Yeah, they're privatized, mm-hmm. but you. Yeah. They took our candy to doctors on duty, and they uh, they X-rayed the candy, and that was oh. like a free service they were doing during Halloween. Mm-hmm. And I just remember one year having to wait. Yeah, like, in, yeah, I had to wait in like the waiting room of doctors on duty, like at like. 10 o'clock at night, like getting my candy x rayed. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, that was, that's a little more in depth, which I can appreciate. That probably would have put their minds even more at, at ease, ease. But no, yeah. we never had anything like that, unfortunately. Yeah. But it was just, I do remember um, hearing about that. And uh, yeah, no, I mean, we never had any incidents, luckily, but yeah, that was, yeah. I, I definitely thought about it too. Like, could this be like poisoned or something? I mean, well, hopefully not. It's, you know, Snickers, it's delicious. So I don't know. <laughs> um, I hate to call out, this is like my favorite candy. Those um, warheads were always covered in like that powder on the outside. Oh, and I always, yeah. I always just like thinking like, huh, what if this is rat poison? But I think that's also because I, I read Flowers in the Attic. Did you ever read Flowers in the yeah. Attic? Yeah. Is that what the happens? Mom- I've never read it. I know like about okay. it. but uh, You might appreciate it. I don't know. It's a little smutty. But uh, the mom poisons her kids by giving them powdered donuts that are covered in rat poison. Um, oh, gross. 
yeah. So I don't know why, but I not to not to call out warheads. Warheads are a great candy, and if they're sealed, they're perfectly fine. And I love them, and I will eat them till my tongue is raw. I love <laughs> them. Please, please send me warheads in the mail. Great. Right. Uh, we should get a PO box so they can. Um, they're my talking favorite about candy. how you could so easily drug it with rat poison. That's hilarious. Oh, Maybe yeah. they'll be good like that. Who knows? <laughs> uh, what, did, what did you do in your hometown? Did you have like trunk or treat? Trunk or treat is like one way of like not going to random strangers' houses, you know, where they have the trick or treating from cars that are like usually people that you already know, or like what? what yeah. did you do? No. Well, I wish I could say that we had more kind of those practices in place but no it was a free-for-all honestly mm. <laughs> I mean, when I grew up it was the time I was going trick-or-treating was in the late 80s and then you know through the through the 90s the early 90s and like mid 90s so no I mean um it was just left to your own devices <laughs> you know I mean we always just went but we did, I mean, I will say, even though, you know, I guess looking back, I I shouldn't have felt a very safe, but I did, you know, I don't know. I didn't feel unsafe in our neighborhood at all. It was suburban, you know, I mean, right next to Chicago, but still felt safe. So, no, I, I don't know. There, there wasn't... Uh, we didn't have any alternatives, I guess, to trick or treating, but I know that there are yeah. now, you know. Yeah. For like safety reasons, like that. I so. feel like the eighties was like this era of like let our children roam and safety is you know, safety yes. is subjective. You know. Oh totally. Yeah. Uh, it's true, like when what, we were what? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, but okay. Pat, like what did what did you what did your parents do? Because I know your parents were like strict Catholic AF. No, uh, my parents were very strict, but when it came to Halloween, it was pretty much yeah, free for all. It was pretty much do whatever the fuck. I yeah, there was like there was like uh, the APD Albuquerque Police Department. They they had like their own like little thing, you know, mm-hmm. like where you could you know you could, I guess technically get uh, your stuff scanned or whatever you know, but we yeah. never did. I don't know if it was because my parents never wanted to or whatever, but no, yeah, we never did. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Interesting. But they did, you know, I mean, my parents were very, I mean, they were strict in the sense of like, you know, like they always knew where we were going to trick or treat, you know, nine times out of 10, I would go to my friend Mark's who, he lived in Tanawan, which was the rich gated neighborhoods where the king size candy bars existed. Yay. You know? <laughs> so my parents knew, oh, okay, they're in a fucking gated neighborhood, you know, like what's the worst that can happen, I guess, type of thing. Yeah. So any any serial killers listening to this, I guess this is how you figure out where to go. Tanawan in Albuquerque, New Mexico. <laughs> they got the best <laughs> king size kids. <laughs> no, but I think like, but but like we were saying uh, the other day, like with the um, 
like uh like the amber alerts and stuff like the yeah the the reason things were so open and free in the 80s is because shit was starting to happen in the 80s people were you know yes kids were getting killed but but like they didn't know anything before then so it was like why be worried you know everyone's just kind of wandering around doing their thing so like why be worried you know and then shit happens and you're like oh okay this is why we should be worried yes exactly yeah i mean but at the same time like people are so afraid but i feel like most of the time you would be able to trace back to where you got the tainted candy you know because you only trick or treat in like a certain area. Anyways, I did get cough drops one time, uh, and that was pretty gross. Uh, For the Halloween candy, yeah, yeah. like calls or something. Yeah, I remember we were probably way too old to trick or treat. Because I remember I trick or treated well into high school, which was way too old to be trick or treating. We were just a menace at that point, <laughs> you know. And I remember going up to this like old guy's house and they, he, this wasn't the first time or only time where we trick-or-treated at someone's house who was like not prepared for that. And I remember he just like grabbed some stuff out of like the dish next to his, like where he kept his keys next to the door and like threw it in our bag. And it was like loose change and a couple cough drops, you know. Oh God. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm sorry to anyone in Monterey who had to deal with my shenanigans uh, throughout <laughs> high school. I will make that apology multiple times throughout this podcast, I feel, because <laughs> it was pretty awful. You know? Oh, no. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> anyway, so that was my story for tonight so hope you enjoyed that you know yeah that's a good one i mean that's uh that's like i don't know that's one i feel like that gets brought up every now and then but like it needs to be repeated that like yeah like maybe we do overreact you know for these myths and stuff like that Mm -hmm. but also like I guess it's better to maybe look at the kid, the candy that your kid is putting into their mouth right now. Well, yeah, you should check to make sure that isn't like my parents, like anything, the wrapper was open, which probably just happened through it being handed from one person to another into my bag. Mm-hmm. They would throw it away, but like, yeah, that's unsanitary. Like throw it away. Mm-hmm. I don't need that piece of candy. I don't need to eat that, you know? That's my fair. my parents were also very strict with like the rules of the candy too. Like that was definitely the main rule was that like if it looked homemade or if it looked like you know it wasn't uh, sealed, then it immediately yeah. gets thrown out. You know, no matter Almost what. Almost nobody makes the homemade anymore or passes out like apples or oranges or anything like that. Oh no, I remember totally, only getting yeah. homemade yeah. stuff like one time, and my parents like knew this person, and so like it was okay. But yeah. I grew up in a very small apartment complex, you know, and like they knew everybody there. My parents went with me throughout the apartment complex, you know. Yeah. Well, that, I that's another thing too. Like yeah. Homemade stuff one time. Mm-hmm. No one ever really does that anymore because they don't want to be that person that's like the witch passing out apples, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Yes, I did. Get, I did get a, a toothbrush, toothpaste pack one time. Uh, uh, that was probably the worst, the worst one I ever yeah, got. Yeah, that sucks. But you kind of also liked it. Don't lie. 
you were kind I mean, of also it was like, like a, it was a package thing you know so i still used it and like i'm yeah. sure my parents were like oh, i guess it's a good thing to you know have all this fucking candy <laughs> and i'll bet it was like a dentist or something that lived there you know yeah probably like, oh, shit i forgot to get candy this year my favorite oh. thing to get was yeah. cans of soda because I would be so fucking dehydrated or like so. That's like, awesome. I never got drinks of any. Like those that's a good idea. Drink. Yeah. That's bad. That's awesome. I always <laughs> put candy out too, and someone always steals all of it. Because I'm yeah, never right. home. I'm always working on Halloween. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're probably going to be working this Halloween, I'm sure. Last year, I was able to get home just in time for our two neighbor kids to show up in their Captain America and Wonder Woman costumes and knock right. on the door and give them. Oh, scared them too. Thank God <laughs> they were they were so cute. Uh, there was this like planter box. I don't know, Teresa, if you remember at our old place, there was like that planter yeah. box outside of our apartment. Yeah, yeah. No, but I the little the neighbor the neighbor kids decorated like half the planter box and we decorated the other half and it was like this ongoing like adding more and more things leading up to halloween it was super cute so yeah i hope that made their their year of the horrible year we all had to do with last year so that's true yeah they moved they moved in like during quarantine yeah yeah wow yeah uh i mean yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Anyways. <laughs> Halloween. <laughs> oh, when this airs, it'll be like right after Halloween. So check your candy before you eat it from last week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you haven't already eaten it. Yeah. Hopefully <laughs> don't poison your kids. Hopefully you're still alive. (laughs) (laughs) You are if you're listening to us right now, by the way. I think anyway. I'm not sure. (laughs) Uh, Anyways, that was a great episode. (laughs) Yes. Oh my Uh, God. Be careful of poisoning. Don't Don't get poisoned. Uh don't get poisoned <laughs> um so should we wrap this one up i'm gonna do the outro like three times <laughs> yeah okay because we have we have uh email now and everything all right so thank you all for listening to my little podcast our podcast here that you can listen to on stitcher apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts Follow us on Facebook at my little pod, my weird little podcast. Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, you didn't say that at the at the beginning either. You said, <laughs> What's that? You said my little podcast at the beginning too. Oh, okay. Like right. no weird. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do it again. I'll do it again. That's the best part. So yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to my weird little podcast. Yeah. Uh, follow us on Apple Podcasts. No, not follow us. Thank you all for listening to us on. Uh, thank you all for listening to us uh, here at my weird little podcast. You yeah. can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Facebook at my weird little podcast or on Instagram, Instagram at my weird little podcast. 
Uh, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions, you can email us at myweirdlittlepodcast at gmail.com. Stay spooky, everyone. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh.